Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jen. And And you're you're listening listening to Fathomless. said that you would have to wait a whole week for part two but but you don't yeah we love you guys it's out today um amanda and i decided that this case was too crazy and that cliffhanger at the end we don't want to make you wait a whole week so you're getting part two yeah a little early all right um but don't worry there will still be an episode released on monday Halloween. Um, we saw that Halloween was on a Monday, and we yes. were like, you know what? Let's do some Halloween related content. Yeah, do something spooky scary. We, I mean, this is all spooky scary. True. New Bedford Highway Killer. Yeah, he's scary. Some spooky scary shit. Um, but we already had the New Bedford Highway episode planned, and we always knew it was going to be a two parter. So, I mean, this is our plan all along to give you the episode early and to have some Halloween stuff on Halloween. Exactly. So, I think we're ready to give you part two. Yeah, part two. Do you want to just go into it? Let's just dive right into it. So, when we last left off, uh, we had the name of our first suspect, which was a local construction worker known for attacking women in the area, Anthony DeGrazia. So it was the spring of 1989 when they brought Tony in for questioning. Wait, this and... is the guy in the truck? I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Yep. So it was I the... know you just said that, but like I was just looking at your eyes. We, and I um... got lost for a second because they're so pretty. Okay. I love you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he was the guy that all the women said, um, the guy with the boxer face, the flat face, beware okay. of him. Yep. That dude. Um, we had Margaret Medeiros who had come forward to the police, said that she had actually been attacked by him. He tried to choke her to death. And she got away. Kicked yep, in the nuts. Exactly. Yes. So, we're back in the spring of 1989, and the detectives first brought him in for questioning. And before he went down to the station, Anthony actually went to his local church and confessed to the priest that he was afraid that somebody was going to try to pin the murders that had been happening on him. And Because this bitch got away. She was probably the first to get away. He was yeah. like... Mm. Exactly. She's definitely going to police. And um, his priest told him that if he had nothing to hide, um, that he need not worry, and urged him that it was fine to talk to the police. Now, 17 women had identified him as the man who had attacked them. You have a pretty unforgettable face, it sounds exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. I'll show you the pictures of him in it. I still don't know what he looks like. like. Do you want me to show you? Can I see? Yeah, I can show you. I can find it. Just picture what? What kind of dog? A boxer. A boxer. Which he does. He has a very flat face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, it looks like he, like, may have gotten, like, punched in the face a couple times. Or, like, steamrolled over. Yes. Um, but anyway. So, that is what he looks like. We'll show the, I'll put the picture on Instagram. But 17 women looked at that photo the police had of him and said, yes, that is the guy that attacked me. So, that was. So, she was, Margaret wasn't the first to get away from him. No. No, he was, that's why they, all those women had the warnings, like, please stay away from that guy. He was known for 
attacking women, choking them, like really violently hurting them and basically just kicking them out of his truck and just moving on to the next one. But this is the first time he went to the police. This is the first woman who went to the police. And I mean, a lot of... he went to the priest. Yes, this is the first time he went to the priest, yeah. And it was after police said, hey, we have some women in Weld Square who said that you attacked them. We'd love to have you come down to the station and just talk to us so we can clear things up. And he immediately went to his priest and said, someone's going to try and pin those murders on me. I know you just said all this, but sometimes, like, it it's okay. in the information. I'm like, wait, detail again? Yeah. No, you're good. Okay. So, now that we've set the scene, I mean, 17 women, that's a pretty... High number. That's a pretty hard number to deny, too. So, detectives asked him how often he picked up women from Weld Square, and he wasn't super forthcoming with them um they started pulling out pictures of women and like mentioning the assaults and stuff and it seemed like tony's memory suddenly became hazy because all of a sudden he couldn't quite remember who he had picked up who he hadn't picked up at one point he actually tried to say that he had never been to weld square ever and that he had a girlfriend and that you know he'd never do anything like that he'd never pick up women of course you're gonna try and deny it like first it's you know come on dude 17 women pointed at your picture and said yeah um a lot of the women also said that you know his pickup truck was always filled with budweiser cans he always smelt like beer and liquor so they started asking about asking him about his drinking maybe he was blacking out while he was doing this and that's why his memory wasn't quite all there and the more they pressed Tony for more answers the more his answers fluctuated and he just kind of went back and forth with no I hadn't been there no I've never picked up women I mean maybe I've picked up some women but I've never heard anyone finally he began to crack he admitted that he had been frequenting the Weld Square area after his girlfriend left his apartment she worked like late nights so when she'd leave to go to work he would go out for the night Go pick somebody up. Yep. Great boyfriend. He admitted to choking women and sexually assaulting them, but he was adamant that he had never killed anyone. And in his exact words, he said, I fucked up and got out of hand before, but I did not kill anyone. Which, like... I feel like the more you you press this guy, the more he's going to give you. Exactly. So police searched Tony's home and his truck, and there was blood found in his vehicle on the seat covers of the passenger seat and the the air vent near the glove box, and they collected samples to test. And in May of 1989, Anthony was arrested on 17 counts of sexual assault and assault and battery. And he hired a fancy attorney, Edward Harrington, had actually been a former mayor of New Bedford and the legal battle began. Uh, Tony was incarcerated for seven months before the first trial began. And did he not have an option for bail? Um, his bail was set incredibly high. Like it it was like $180,000. Okay. So he just sat there. Yes. Um, and in that time he was bounced back and forth between the County jail and the Bridgewater state hospital where he was, um, treated for several mental evaluations which nothing like significant came up in any of those. Um, during his incarceration, he was uh, required to provide a blood sample to the DA, which years later was sent to the FBI to compare to the samples found in his truck, but the testing really didn't yield anything. And, however, there was little to no evidence linking him to the 
victims of the actual killings and the bodies that had been found on the highway. So no murder charges were ever brought up. Um, overall, he spent about 13 months in jail and had 18 court appearances regarding the assaults and several requests to lower his $180,000 bail uh, that his lawyer said was too high and was ridiculous. But I mean, was he ever charged with any like assault? So he was released from prison in June of 1990. Um, he was charged with a few bits of assault, but eventually everything was dropped. Um, but he was quickly rearrested um, after being released from prison because he had disclosed to a prison therapist as he was leaving that he was going to make the district attorney's life living hell. And he made some other threatening remarks about them as well. He felt he had been very wrongly treated and... In fact, they set his bail too high. He basically felt like the whole thing was a big witch hunt. And by the time he was able to post his bond, one of his former employers actually put up like a savings account and helped him out and got him out of jail. Um, in a bizarre twist of events, a month later, July 1990, Anthony DeGrazia was found dead outside of his girlfriend's parents' house in Freetown, Massachusetts. What the Fuck? Yes. How did he, he die? He was found lying underneath a picnic table, face down. Authorities first assumed that it was a suicide, but autopsy reports did not support that theory. His death was ruled out a ruled as a homicide and is still unsolved to this day. Oh my god. Yes. Lastly, in 1995, Anthony's mother Diane actually filed a lawsuit against the district attorney general, Ronald Pina. She believed that her son never hurt anyone and was coerced into a confession because at the time the DA was really just trying to close the case of the New Bedford Highway Killer, um, which, I you mean, know, if he had, he did admit to hanging out in that area in New Bedford, and yeah, several women exactly seven, seventeen women identified and said, "Be careful of this guy." Exactly. So I mean, he probably wasn't innocent of. Yeah. Some assault to those Like I women. said, I don't think he was responsible for the murders, but he definitely was not completely innocent entirely. Like, he definitely hurt women. Do you think, like, the had anything to do with his murder? Possibly. Like a... It, you know it's I mean? very... It, I think this it's very weird. This guy's coming for us. I mean, I feel like they definitely didn't really... Like, they did not try really hard to investigate it. From what I could tell, there was very little evidence on it. So that does lead me to believe that they were not interested in finding his killer. I don't know if they necessarily had something to do with it, but they definitely did not make great efforts to figure out what happened to him, which is still pretty shitty. Yeah, I mean, he is I a mean, human too. Yes. But... Maybe he's a shitty human, but... Definitely a shitty human, yeah. but another death swept under the rug. Here. Yeah. Okay, Yeah, so very weird. But in the days following uh, DeGrazia's death, the Bristol County District Attorney's Office had also released their official statement that they had a new suspect that they were very confident in. A local lawyer with a serious dark side named Kenneth Ponty. And, and this is the guy that you think did it? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Kenneth Ponty was a 40-year-old lawyer who had grown up in New Bedford. Like I said, he was a lawyer with a known dark side. Prior to studying law, he had gotten himself in a lot of trouble and had a very serious heroin problem. So... Eventually, he managed to get clean, went to college, and later went on to law school. Okay. And although he did do all that, he did not stay clean for very long. It was very known throughout all of his friends and 
most of the community that he had basically switched heroin for coke. So that was his new habit. And as a lawyer, he was a pretty well-respected member of the community. He'd also made several large donations to the uh, county sheriff's office and the elections, which eventually earned him a role of honorary deputy sheriff for the Bristol County, which (laughs) is, uh, it's basically a fancy title, but it does give him a badge. And despite having a drug record, a gun. Um... So there's a lot of uh, themes of yeah. authority members getting away with murder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he was known to the police as a weird, quirky guy with a lot of paranoia. Uh, there was actually a big ep- excerpt in the book uh, Shallow Graves where they were doing some interviews with a officer from New Bedford who had said that there was a time back in, like, I want to say it was, like, 87, um, that Kenny had called them in, brought them to his house, because he said that there was something wrong with a movie that he had bought, and he wanted them to see it, because he was like, hey, you guys know about video editing and, like, tampering and stuff like that, like, you need to look at this. So, when the officer arrived at his house, and it wasn't, like, a 911 call, it was, like, a friend of his, basically, because he knew a lot of the police in the area. He was a lawyer. Um, but Kenny had a regular copy of like Porky's, which was a movie. Um, when he started playing it in the VCR, he started playing it in slow motion for them and was frantically telling the officer that he was convinced that as he played it in slow motion, there was another movie overlapping it that was people dying, women being killed, babies being killed. And in the book, I mean, you'll read it when you read it, but he's like, do you see it? Do you see this? Like, do you see what's going on? He's crying, telling these officers that, like, he sees something else on this movie, and they see nothing. They end up, like, taking the movie, like, the videotape from him, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll look they, into like, it. on drugs? They, that's when they knew he had a coke problem, so they were just like, yeah, sure, buddy. Or maybe some, like, you know, and, you paranoia. Well, I mean, maybe coke it. can, if you have a serious coke habit, like, you can definitely become insanely paranoid. So, it that's basically what they thought happened. What they they just they knew he had a coke problem. They knew that he was a very paranoid guy, and they just kind of played it off like, oh, whatever, just weird Kenny being weird. And I mean, he was known to be like kind of a weird, agitated, paranoid dude. And with as far gun. as yes, with a gun and a badge. I don't know how. So, as far as law went, he took in a lot of low level, like criminal cases and you know like civil cases basically just enough to pay the bills but nothing super high profile um and he had actually represented some of the victims in the case in some episode some time uh you ready for this wait so he was the lawyer for some of the victims victims he was a lawyer for nancy lee pavia in a bankruptcy case and Nancy's boyfriend actually also later stated that they used to do coke together. They actually, uh, Nancy would often buy coke for him because Kenny was too afraid to, like, go get it himself because he was a lawyer and, like, you know, an upstanding member of society. So he'd have other people do his dirty work. Yeah. And um, Frankie's boyfriend actually made a statement to police later that he knew that Nancy was afraid of him. He was afraid of Kenny. Mary Rose Santos had hired him for a civil case once. 
and Kenneth actually helped Mary's husband put up missing person flyers when she went missing. Oh my god. Uh, and then there is... I mean, sh- that's typical behavior, usually, of the yeah. person responsible. They help, and they go on the searches, and they go to the funerals. Mm-hmm. So, it, was he connected to every single victim through this? Pretty much. being a lawyer? Um, Rochelle had also hired him with a case against a man who had sexually assaulted her, and it was rumored that they were dating. Uh, she was actually living at Kenny's home at the time that she disappeared. Um, she'd given her mother the house number of Ken's home and was like, you can reach me here if you ever need me within the months of her disappearance. And she was actually last seen in his vehicle in May of 1988, driving around downtown New Bedford with them. But he never reported her missing. And that was his girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, Don Mendez had also been seen banging on the door of Kenny's Chestnut Street home in New Bedford. And Robin Lynn Rhodes once told her sister that she was dating a lawyer once later identified as Kenneth County. So pretty safe to say he had some connections with, you know. All of them. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. There are a few that he didn't, but that's a list that's long enough to that it got my fucking attention. So, and it got the police's attention. And it wasn't just, you know, connections like that. He was also a habitual visitor of Weld Square, and the women there knew him as a weirdo as well. Uh, Kenny was known to invite girls back to his house to do cocaine, uh, but then when he would get them back to his house, he would lock them inside and not let them leave for days at a time. That is so fucking scary. Yeah. Yep, would not let them leave, like refuse to let them leave. Women said that he never like assaulted them when they were there he just wanted somebody to stay there with them and like do coke and just hang out with him and just be there he That's didn't like want to be a horrible alone. tinder date gone yeah. absolutely wrong yeah exactly you go to this is why you never go to someone's house yep exactly you so always meet in public they investigated like the when investigators are talking to women they told him like they told them that you know they never really thought that he was going to hurt them they just knew that he was just kind of like a weird paranoid kind of fucking cokehead which, like, I'm also, like, I'm, I'm sorry if somebody was, like, locking my friends into their house and they came back and told me about that. I'd be like, girl, never go there again. Like, I don't care how much money he's given you. But, you know, unfortunately, these girls didn't always have much of a choice either. And so this is where shit gets really weird, too. There was one woman who had uh, mentioned that she had been staying at Kenny's house one night and he put on a porno. And... In this porno, it did not look like it was a normal film. It was actually a woman being sexually assaulted and then choked to death. Was this his own homemade video? The woman said that she felt like it was not fake. She specifically said that the woman's face in the video and her eyes looked incredibly real when she, like, was dying in the video. And um, she later told authorities that she really wasn't sure or not. At first, she never said anything about it. A lot of these women never came forward to the police because, let's get real, they were sex workers. Kenny was paying them to be there. They went to the police. The police are just going to arrest them for prostitution charges. They're not going to look into, you know, the nice lawyer who's also part of the deputy sheriff's, like, the deputy sheriff's office. Like, it, that's the shitty fucking truth of it, unfortunately. So... 
if that's not fucking suspicious, I don't know what is. Because, like, that... Like, what? Now, is that just a video he had? Or yep. do you think he made it and he was the person... So that was really all I could find on it. It wasn't... She didn't say it was him in the video. They couldn't really... That was probably like a message to her, like, this could be you. Like, I am capable of this. But, yeah, they didn't really say who the man was in the video. I'm not really sure. They didn't go into deep description of it. Just that it was a a, a video of a woman being sexually assaulted and choked to death. Wouldn't call that porno. That a murder video. Yeah, I mean, like that's that is a lot. Now, the most compelling evidence that they actually had against Kenneth was his relationship with Rochelle. Like I said, he was actually representing her in an assault case, but Rochelle was actually also a witness to Penny allegedly threatening a man with a gun in April of 1988. So, remember our friend Detective John Dextrotter from the yeah. first episode, the one who had the kind good of. Cop. Yep, who compiled all of the evidence and first brought up all of the missing women to the DA. So he was actually counting on Rochelle to testify in that case against Kenny. And she'd apparently been in Kenny's car when he jumped out and confronted a man waving a gun in his face and threatening to kill him. However, Rochelle disappeared a month later in May, and we know that she wasn't found until the following year, dumped in a gravel pit beaten to death. Which, you know. He probably didn't want her to testify against him, and that's why she killed her. Like I said, Rochelle's mother had mentioned months before her disappearance that Rochelle had actually given her mother Kenneth's phone number and said, hey, this is where you're going to be able to reach me if you need me. I'm going to be staying here for a little while. And unfortunately, without the witness to the gun case, charges were dropped against Kenny. And surprise, surprise, he packs up and moves to Florida in October of 1988, right after the last woman went missing in September, which was Dawn, uh-huh. and right when the first couple bodies started showing up. Bodies started showing up in, like, July. Yeah. So. He was like, fuck, I gotta leave. Ex- like, right? And How nothing was it? else. Exactly. No one else went missing after Nobody that. else went missing after that. So, that's. Suspicious. Exactly. Now, in the summer of 1989, once it was announced that Kenny was a prime suspect, sorry guys, Jesus, um, Kenneth became very vocal about his alleged innocence, and he was in fact calling the New Bedford Police Station, the Bristol County DA's office, and every major news outlet and newspaper from his Florida home, expressing his innocence basically fucking daily, literally every day. While calling the DA, he was also constantly giving them leads, being like, oh, you should look into the Coast Guard. You should be looking into truck drivers. You should be looking into the fishermen. Have so you paranoid found- because he has a guilty conscience and mm-hmm. trying to redirect the attention off I mean, of him. To me, that's what it seems like. And whenever the DA talked to him, they would try to get information and be like, oh, like, when was the last time you heard from, you know, Don Mendez? When was the last time you heard from Nancy? And Kenny would just kind of dance around it and be like, have you looked into the truck drivers yet? You should look into all the truck drivers that use those highways. Like, you know, shit like that. And it got to a point where even Kenny's lawyer was like, bro, you need to stop calling all these people and, like, 
confessing your innocence. He like wrote a letter to like the Standard Times and stuff. Like, yeah, which is very like, like I, if you are really innocent, I can see how you would want to do that. But it was to a point where like, if your lawyer is telling you like, hey, you need to stop if calling you're all these people every day to every outlet. Yeah, and like that's even just you're putting yourself a little bit. Even after his lawyer advised him to stop, he didn't stop. Which is just ridiculous. And so, unfortunately, there was really no evidence linking, linking him to all of the murders. They knew that, you know, he had represented a lot of the women in those cases. But he also represented, you know, a lot of people that were kind of from, like, the lower income and from that downtown New Bedford area that had, like, low civil cases and, you know, charges like that. And, you know, there was enough evidence to link him to the disappearance of Rochelle, though. So, a year later, in August of 1990, Kenneth Ponty was arraigned on one count of murder for the assault and death of Rochelle. And he pleaded, and I quote, absolutely not guilty. Which, like... Absolutely not. So dramatic. Dude. Yeah. Definitely had he a... He seems a like a very dramatic there, so I actually person. Have, I have a picture of him shouting at a photographer for the standard times on the courtroom steps okay which uh i'll show you and he does he looks like a typical fucking tool so <laughs> um anyway detectives were uh confident that they would be able to get him on hopefully at least one count of murder and they figured you know maybe finally the victims and the families might feel like they got some kind of justice uh, i do want to mention that pretty much every single family member of all of the women were at his trial every day that it went on, which is really sad that they had to listen to this clown swear up and down in court that he didn't do anything when personally, I really think he did, but this is where it gets really frustrating. The evidence part, right? A year later, the DA dropped all charges claiming that there wasn't enough direct physical evidence linking him to the crime scene of Rochelle. Basically, they wanted a smoking gun, which we did not have, so they weren't going to charge him. Which, I, like, my first initial reaction is, this is fucking bullshit. Like, absolute fucking bullshit. Um, obviously, that's just my opinion. Yeah. But uh, the judicial system is, you know, there's very different, there's a very big difference between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence, and you really kind of need both. For a jury to come to a conviction and I know it gets really frustrating with stuff like this but we got to remember that you know the whole system is kind of supposed to be based on the fact that everyone is proven in it it's everyone is innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and that beyond a reasonable doubt is the really big keyword here and I went to, like I said, I went to the um, U.S. court website to look up the difference between circumstantial and direct evidence because I feel like that's something people kind of get confused of. And it said that evidence may be direct or circumstantial. Direct evidence is proof of a fact such as a testimony by a witness about what a witness personally saw or heard or did. Also, you know, DNA evidence, murder weapon, things like that. Physical, tangible things that place somebody in that time. And so circumstantial evidence is 
evidence that is indirect and that is basically proof of one or more facts from which one can find another fact. So basically, you know, it's like because of X, Y, and Z, one can assume that A, B, C happened. Which, that's, you know, to give you like a very rough explanation of the difference between direct and circumstantial evidence. Which, you know, is unfortunately why they dropped all charges. So it's really shitty that they didn't have anything directly linking Penny to the disappearance or death of Rochelle. It was just a lot of circumstantial shit. You know, she was living at his house at the time. You know, he was one of the last people seen with her, but there was, that was it. That was pretty much it. And yeah, all I feel like if DNA was a thing, yes, that which is... unfortunately it wouldn't be for another few years. But if it was a thing, exactly. Like even with the Robert Chambers case, yeah. I'm sorry. I just feel like if DNA was a thing back then, it's really hard. And I mean, it's amazing that forensic science has come so far. But it's cases like this in those early years. I mean, that's even why in there the was 90s. That's still... why serial killers were able to be serial killers yeah. back then. Like you don't really hear of too many serial killers now. Yeah, it's much harder. And I mean, the hardest part too was like. Even in, like, the next decade that we're, like, that we're going into from the 80s into the 90s, like, the more forensic science came out, but not all judges actually accepted it. A lot of them would call it, like, you know, junk science and stuff like that. Like, they didn't believe that it was accurate, which just blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, look, today, a lot of people are being connected and killers are being found because, like, they'll enter someone's dna yeah. to like ancestry like an exactly yeah, like DNA 23 and me and... yeah and they'll find people they'll find family members and that's how some people have been getting caught which for it is crimes. it's it's really it's i hope that something like that can happen but i don't know but you know back to kenny so in 2009 the patio and driveway of Kenneth's old home on Chestnut Street in Bedford was actually dug up, but it didn't really yield anything. Police actually never really released why they were doing it, and they never released if they found anything. So I don't think they found anything. If they did, they kept it to themselves. And one morning in May of 2009, Kenny was arrested for shoplifting. Where? He was found with four cans of sardines and a block of cheese that he had stolen from a price right in New Bedford. Oh my god. Which is like sardines. Literally the strangest two fucking items that you could shoplift. But I'm also kind of glad that his life was in such despair that that dude was stealing cans of sardines and a block of cheese from a price right. That's what you get. Was he not a lawyer and anymore at this I, point? I would doubt it. I would highly doubt it. I mean, it was... It was 2009. He was, like, 40 back in the 80s. So he was old by this point. He yeah. was in the 60s. And on January 27th, 2010, after friends called police to do a welfare check, Kenneth Ponty was found dead in his New Bedford home on Austin Street. He was 61 years old. How did he die? Um, did not say. Okay. They said uh, they assumed natural causes. From the article that I read of it, um, police did not suspect any foul play. I mean, he was 61 years old. He also did a lot of drugs, just, so his heart yeah. probably And aged. considering the year before he was eating canned sardines and a block of cheese, like, dude was probably not the healthiest. Yeah, definitely some that's, clogged arteries. Yeah, that's a lot of fucking sodium, so. 
that's yeah not surprised um but they did not assume that anything like bad had happened okay. uh so there was another suspect that i'm just gonna brush over very quickly because i definitely don't think he had anything to do with it it's one of those things where a person was in prison for another crime and they just claimed that they also did this yeah that happens a lot um which i i think it was just you know he's trying to get like some fucking prison clout or some shit Attention. i don't know yeah prison exactly. clout <laughs> like <laughs> But um, while serving time for the murder of his own mother, Fall River, Fall River resident Daniel Travares Jr. wrote a letter to, um, wrote a very threatening letter to one of the prison staff members, claiming that he was also responsible for the New Bedford Highway killings. Um, literally, he did not put anything, like, in the note, there was no evidence that wasn't already released to the public. So, like, obviously nothing ever came of this. It, probably just did, like, a quick... Uh, yeah, dude probably read a fucking newspaper and was like, ooh, I want to be known for this too. Like, no. You're lame. You're so lame. But, um, yeah, obviously nothing ever came of it. You know, I think he was just one of those sick people that, you know, just was trying to trying to make a title for himself. So Yeah, I mean, he's already in jail for murder, so what's another? Exactly. Him, he actually, there was another couple counts of murder that he was charged with after, but I didn't want to do, like, I don't want to give the dude the time of day, so I didn't want to do a lot of research into it. Um, but he, were they around? Not the area? in that area. No, okay. it was there was a couple in Fall River, but they were it was a man and like a woman. It wasn't anywhere close to what these killings were. Okay, like, there was no comparison. Do you know whatsoever. the names of those people? I could not find them. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, okay. but. Yeah, like I said, I didn't want to spend too much time on Daniel, but I did want to bring it up because his name was mentioned in a couple articles and stuff. He was one of the suspects, and I mean, he did say that he did it, but... They have to look into it, obviously, but a lot of people that are sitting in prison are like, I need some drama in my life. Exactly, yeah. You know, sitting in a cell doing nothing all day, so... Stir at the pot a little. Exactly. But, yeah. So that's one more suspect, but... Nothing, nothing substantial. Nothing like Kenny. No, nothing like Kenny. Now, there was another theory that I found on Reddit, which was actually really interesting. And this was the Lisbon Ripper of Lisbon, Portugal. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the Portugal part. Yeah. So between 1992 and 1993, there were three women who were brutally raped and murdered in Lisbon, Portugal. They were all considered sex workers as well. The first victim was 22-year-old Maria Valentina, who was known as Tina, and she was found on July 31st, 1992, in um, Pavo de Santo Adriano. I'm gonna uh, good effort. I, I don't know Portuguese. So Me either. I'm so sorry. And uh, she was lying in a pool of her own blood. She had been strangled, but also disemboweled, and some of her organs had been removed. And the second victim was Maria Fernanda. 24 years old, found on January 27th in 1993 in a cabin in Entre Campos. She was same as the other Maria. She was found strangled and disemboweled. Some of her organs had been removed. And the third victim was 27-year-old Maria Dajo. She was a resident of the Santo Antonio dos Cavaleros ghetto and lived alone. She was found in her apartment on March 5th, 1993 near a location where the first victim who she was a friend of found so i guess like the areas were fairly close to each other and she was 
disemboweled as well. Uh, but this time, almost all of her organs had been removed from her. Again, did, she was strangled. How do they link this to New Bedford Highway Killer? So, all of the women looked very similar. They all had dark hair. They were all around, like, five feet. They all had the same name, Maria, at least for these women. They were all of Portuguese descent. Majority of the women that were also killed in New Bedford were of Portuguese descent and looked very similar yeah. to these women. And New Bedford, Fall River, that area has a very large... Yes. population so that is don't know. yep that is what i'm actually gonna get into now okay yeah. so according to the uh, new bedford whaling museum website more than 55 percent of the population of the city of new bedford is still portuguese wow to this day. that's a lot um yeah they have a massive massive population they have a um, huge festival yep so that's the next thing i'm gonna say so sorry i'm stealing your are, shine go on read my notes i, I did not I you, but. well I'm, I'm a little bit portuguese yeah. and um a lot of uh portuguese from the azores the islands yep. off the coast of mainland portugal they traveled over to the u.s and you know yeah. you just kind of go directly east you hit new bedford yeah, you hit new bedford so uh, every summer, New Bedford has the world's largest Portuguese festival. Fuck yeah. So it's larger than any festival, like, in Portugal. And it is called the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament. It is a four-day feast. It's also the largest ethnic cultural celebration in New England. And if you have never been, it's amazing. I have the not been. food. Oh my god, the food. Honestly, Portuguese It's in the summer, right? Is, yeah, it's in August. Okay, we'll go next summer. So, but it's, oh my god, the food is fucking unreal mm -hmm. it's it's just so much fun it really just beautiful community beautiful culture so like i said that is pretty much why they kind of felt like this could possibly be something that happened maybe he just got like brave and was like i need a new mo and started taking organs well that too and also you know i mean it didn't say that any organs were removed from these women but also a lot of the remains in new bedford were skeletal so like I don't know if you have. could really tell that they were disemboweled. Yeah. Or if they were, they could have assumed it was, you know, animals or something. They were left out in the elements and exposed. But, yeah, so in 1993, two FBI agents actually went to Portugal and brought over files and cases, like, you know, all the case files for the New Bedford Highway Killer. But, unfortunately, there wasn't much evidence linking them. And like you just said, you know, the, the women were really disemboweled. So the the bodies, like the way that just the strangulation fit, but nothing else really. And that was pretty much it. Nothing ever came of it. But they did have that. was just like a Reddit theory? Yeah. So it was yeah. a strong theory because it does make sense. I mean, it could, yeah. The, the killings in New Bedford happened between 1988 and 1989. So it would not be surprising if, you know, somebody went from there back to Portugal because they were afraid of being caught. You know, had like a cooling off period yeah. of a year or two, and then kind of got back into it. Yeah, they get it's a fairly sound theory, you yeah. know. And I mean, where they have such a massive Portuguese population, it wouldn't be uncommon. I mean, I know a ton of people who go to Portugal every summer, and they live in like Fall River and New Bedford and stuff like that, and they go and visit family over there. So yeah. it, you know, possible. Now in 2011, something blew the case of the Lisbon Ripper wide open. And this was crazy. I could not believe that this was even a thing. A 21-year-old man named Joel applied to participate in a Portuguese show called Secret Story, which was like a reality show where people would like admit like a, like a dark secret that they had or something. And 
they would have to try and guess, like, the participants would try to guess each other's secrets while concealing their own, like, some kind of weird, sounds like a cool reality show, but you know. This was based out of Portugal? This was based out of Portugal, yes. Okay. So the secret that Joel had applied with was that his father, Jose Pedro, was the Lisbon Ripper. And his father was 46 now. He would have been, like, in his, like, 20s at the time of it happening. And he was arrested and actually confessed to the three slayings. Said that he did it. Now, unfortunately, he was not prosecuted or charged with murder because Portugal has a prescription period, which is, like, their version of statute of limitations of 15 years, which obviously these happened in 1993, 2011, so it had passed. Are you serious? So, yep. You can't put someone in jail for something? Nope. That's, do they nope. still have this law? Yeah. So if you do commit a crime and you don't get caught for 15 years, you're good? Yes. Oh my God. Yep. So yeah, because they have that prescription period law, he even though he confessed and said, yes, I did this, he was never charged, never tried. Was he linked to New Bedford? No. Okay. Um, not, I mean, because they didn't do an investigation, they couldn't. So that was pretty much it. He didn't confess to them, but he did confess to the three slayings in Portugal. I didn't know if they, like, could look into him secretly and be like, oh, he lived in New Bedford. No. Years, no, that'd be like, because then, then he could sue them for, like, you know, all kinds of shit, probably. Yeah, you can't, you can't, like, secretly up. investigate somebody if you're not planning to charge them. That's a, uh, an invasion of privacy, unfortunately. Okay, well, so, so what, isn't the secret government agent looking at me through my iPhone right now? Yeah, well, you know, apparently we all signed <laughs> off on that or something. Ah, Probably. Anyway, 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 <laughs> not what this podcast is about. So, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay, so, I mean, unfortunately, that left the case of the Lisbon Ripper unsolved to this day. I wouldn't say it's unsolved. It's on paper, that's what they say. Oh but because, yeah, I mean, he confessed, I would say. I mean, that. I don't know. But, um, and so tragically, the case of the New Bedford Highway Killer is also unsolved to this day. Are they even still looking into it? It is still an open case, yes. It is still open. And unfortunately, it was a cold case, but, you know, it's not like they closed it and were like, well, whatever. So, they are, I mean, anytime they leave the case open, they are hoping that, you know, potentially they could find evidence. And um, in a uh, state police office in Bridgewater, there is a whole pallet in the basement with, like, ten boxes full of evidence that have been sent out to the DNA um, labs and FBI, in FBI, at the FBI. <laughs> and, um, oh, I'm sorry if you just heard both we're still sick don't forget yeah, we're still very sick but i hope it's, I hope it's bearable but um yeah i mean they did some dna testing but nothing's ever come of it yet but they still have it open and like i said unfortunately you know between these 11 women that there was 15 children whose mothers were ripped away from them and we might never know what happened yeah i feel is, like after this long and looking into the prime suspects already. I mean, I hope, I hope that there is one of those cops that is, you know, you hear of people that would see these cases and they want to solve it, so they get on the police force in that town so they can solve murders yeah. that are unsolved. Like, you hear stories like that sometimes, and 
you know, let's hope that someone can help with this all one day, because that's a lot of women. It is. And even though it was, you know, 30-something years ago, they still yeah. deserve justice. They do. I mean, they still have family that lives in this area that are hoping to find answers. And I do want to end this on, I mean, as positive a note as I can, I actually have a quote from Dee DeSantos, who is the sister of Nancy Lee, because I feel like, you know, I want to end it with what's most important, which is yeah. these 11 women. And so this is a quote that Judy said about her sister. And it is, you have to go on, you have to survive and keep going, but you never forget. A part of my sister lives in all of us and all of the children and the grandchildren. I see Nancy in all of them. Goosebumps. Which is just, it is, it's beautiful. But it does, it gives you goosebumps. And that is the unsolved cold case of the New Bedford Highway Killer. I'm never going to drive up and down 195 or, or 140, 140 ever again ever without again. thinking of this. Yeah. I I mean, my boyfriend, like I said, he lives in New Bedford. He works at a bar in downtown New Bedford. I'm always in that area. And it just, yeah, I don't feel the same when I drive by the Reed Road exit ramp signs. I mean, I'm not in that area much anymore since, you know, I'm up in New Hampshire now. But I've driven 140 yeah. so many times yeah and like i had one of my friends lived in the bedford for a little bit i had another friend that lived in fairhaven so i always took 140 out of, like from lakeville I yeah lakeville that first body was found yeah like the freetown area it's just it's really really sad yeah and that's why i you know really wanted to focus this podcast on cases near us because it really makes you realize what fucked up shit happens in your own neighborhoods and this is one that like not many people know about i mean like we said in the the part one like i I didn't even know 11 women that went missing and like i didn't hear about this until i came across maureen boyle's book in barnes and nobles i actually um have had like maybe one or two people and i think you did too um be like you know, are you going to cover this case? And when we posted about it the yeah. other day, the episode announcement, uh, I got a message on Instagram that was like, I'm so happy you guys are covering this. I can't oh. wait to listen. So, okay. yeah. yeah, people know about this case, but a lot they of people do. don't. And a lot of people to go missing. It is. It's I mean, a lot. And, and it was before we were born. Before, yeah. But I'm sure our parents remember. Oh, yeah. So... That was a crazy case. It was. Great job on that research. Thank you. I know you put like a lot of time I into this. Did it it like I said, it consumed my life for like a month. Yeah. But I really I remember telling you like a few weeks ago too, I was like, I'm, I need to make this a two part episode because I knew that I wanted to do right by all of the women. Yeah. And I did not want to rush through their stories. Yeah. And like we're gonna have a lot kinda... of episodes that are gonna be multiple parts. Oh yeah. Um yeah, this one we're gonna I mean, do like a ton, a ton of victims for this one, so obviously it was yeah. gonna be long. But like Bridgewater Triangle, that's gonna oh my be, god, multi-part series. Um, I feel like more Amari is gonna be a long Definitely one. Definitely a two-parter. I, I'm gonna save that one for a little bit. Um, but I'm de- I definitely want to cover her. I don't care if she's been covered all over the place. Yeah, I want to do that. Um, but. Yeah, again, great, great fucking job on the research. You did amazing. Thank you, thank yes, you. Yes. I tried my Take best. I am. Take a I'm, I'm sitting down, so not really. <laughs> you were giving the gesture. I exactly. 
all right um well i guess that's it so stay tuned on monday yes. for some halloween related spooky scary yeah it's gonna be great and stay spooky stay scary and, and stay, stay safe. safe bye guys